The reading for today is Exodus 18, 1 through 9. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my people was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into uh, the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all, the Lord, for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Trey. <laughs> so that would be Jethro... Moses' father-in-law who rejoiced, is that right? I, mean, I just want to make sure everybody knows that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. I don't know if you noticed that in the text or not, but just, just trying to help you out there. So uh, we are in Exodus and just 18 today, and we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're glad that you are here, and uh, I don't know, we're in uh, the 10th week, so that means we have five, after, five left after this of this uh, walkthrough through. Uh, the book of Exodus, but I wanted to make you aware of uh, one more event that's coming up. Uh, our November Backstories is coming up on, on November 7th, Thursday night, and here 6.30 to 7.45, and I will tell you that of all the backstories that we've done, this is, uh, all the backstories contain God stories, but this is really just a God story. Uh, it's an incredible story of redemption for somebody that um, never, never, ever, you would never think if you'd known him prior to knowing Jesus that God would save somebody like this. Uh, an incredible story uh, from New York all the way to Phoenix and now to Casa Grande, uh, and, and we're going to bring him in and we're going to interview him and let him tell his story. Uh, it'll be a great time. Uh, it'll be really encouraging to a lot of people, and, and it'll drop some jaws in here, I'll tell you, I think. Um, so I, we'd look forward to that. It'll be Thursday night, November 7th, 6.30 to 7.45, okay? So Exodus, again, this has been... Uh, I think, uh, just a terrific uh, series that we've been doing and that we've been walking through. Uh, so many people have said that a lot of lights have come on. Uh, eyes have been opened, and, and that's really, it's really good. Uh, but chapter 18, I believe, is unique. It, it's almost strange, if you think about it. Um, during the Old Testament, you'll see times, including in the book of Exodus, you'll see times when God will cover decades or even centuries with one or two sentences. And then occasionally, like he does in chapter 18, he slows down 
and he unpacks two conversations that two people have. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he slow down just for these conversations? Because they're significant, and there are things that God wants us to know about him through these conversations. Uh, but also, Exodus, is 18, Exodus 18 is unique in this way as well. So recently, in recent weeks, we've been through the ten plagues. We've been through the Passover. We've been through the parting of the Red Sea. We've been through the, the provision of manna and quail and water when all seemed lost for God's people. Next week, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. I mean, I mean, Charlton Heston made a movie about the Ten Commandments, for crying out, this is how big this is next week, okay? And again, sandwiched in between all of that are two simple little conversations with Moses and Jethro, his father-in-law. Why is that? It just seems like chapter 18 is a little light compared to everything else. It seems like it doesn't have the gravitas that the rest of Exodus should have. In fact, um, a week and a half ago when we did the, the preaching collective, some of the pastors came into the preaching collective from Redemption Church and, and understand with their tongues firmly planted in their cheeks, but some of them said, why are we even preaching on chapter 18? Just compared to everything else, it seems so small. Well, trust me, there's a lot here, and we're going to be wrestling with it. So let me pray, and we'll get into this. Lord God, again, you are the master, and you are the greatest storyteller ever, and it's your story that's being told. And so we recognize the beauty and the truth in a chapter like chapter 18 when you slow things down. And so help us to recognize that and then to open our ears, open our hearts, and open our minds to what you have to say through this, this really gentle and, and, and empowering and glorifying and honoring relationship between Jethro and Moses. Help us to be able to see that. And and as I, uh, as I constantly pray, these, this is your word, and these should be your words. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and apply it to your people, your heart, the hearts and the minds of your people. And so in that respect, I pray that even though I'm the messenger, uh, that you would move me out of the way so that specifically your word is heard today. Let me just offer commentary. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Trey read for us verses 1 through 9. Let me kind of unpack some things from that paragraph that was read. This is the reuniting of, of Moses with his wife Zipporah and his children. And, and, and Moses, we don't know this for sure, but we can reconstruct that apparently Moses was kind enough or had the forethought uh, enough to... Um, when he went back into Egypt and knew that this challenging confrontation with Pharaoh was coming and all the plagues and everything that would happen, uh, that he would send Zipporah, his wife, and his children back to her father to stay in Midian uh, during this time. And so we have this sweet reunion between Moses and his wife and his children. But frankly, when you read about the reunion, you don't really get much out of Zipporah and, and Moses, if anything at all. Um, in, instead, it's completely overshadowed by what happens between Jethro and, and Moses. That's really interesting. And so, again, God is tipping his hand that there's something very significant going on here between Jethro and Moses. And there's three really helpful things that I think we can pull 
out of this first paragraph that apply to us in, in, in a number of different ways. Uh, first of all, let's consider who Jethro is. Jethro, the father-in-law. Who is he? Well, we are given this detail. He's a priest in Midian. In other words, he's a pagan priest. We know for a fact that as a priest in Midian, he's not a priest for the Israelites. He's a pagan priest. And as a pagan priest in that area, during those times, he would have believed in a pantheon of gods. Not one god, but a pantheon of gods. It's like a department store of gods. And every god has their own little area that they're supposed to take care of. And so he would serve, and he would worship, and he would try to mollify each of those gods on behalf of the people and for himself in order that their lives would be successful and happy and joyful and fulfilled and all of those things that every human being since Genesis 3 has been looking for. And involved in this pantheon, there are many gods. There's the god of the stars, the god of the sun, the god of the moon. There's not even one god over all the celestial beings. There's even division among the celestial beings. And then there's the god of fertility and the god of the harvest and the god of the sea and the god of the mountains. There had to be a god of the coffee if they were anywhere near Arcadia. Probably the most important god. Now think about this in our context. You know, we're... We're 21st century Western culture people. We're very sophisticated. We don't have a pantheon of gods, do we? Yeah, we do. But we're too sophisticated to admit it. We don't like to talk about it. But we do. Just look at the way we behave. Look at our actions. Look at how we talk around it. We have our own pantheon. We have the God of status, the God of wealth, the God of career, the God of power, the God of success, the God of influence, the God of education, the God of politics, the God of social causes. We've made our children into little gods. We have the God of sex. And if you're a Christian and you say, no, I believe in Jesus, many times what you're also saying is that Jesus is the God of those things and he's supposed to take care of those things for you and make them happy for you as well. So even if, even if Jesus is our God, he's, we want him to operate as though he's a pantheon for our little department store pleasures as well. But now, back to Jethro. Think about this. Because of what Jethro's heard, not because of what he's experienced or seen. You understand the people of Israel experienced and saw all these things. All Jethro did was hear about it. Because of what Jethro has heard, this priest of Midian is now considering Yahweh as possibly the one true God. That's pretty amazing. It's a God story. Let me ask you this question. Have you heard about Jesus? And not Jesus, the vending machine department store God, but Jesus, the one true God who went to the cross as a sacrifice for for your sin and my sin so that we would never have to do that ourselves. And while he was hanging on the cross, dying for us because he loved us so much, he said, it is finished. This is the last sacrifice made for anybody's sin. And you can, you can have that righteousness and that holiness when you stand before God the Father if you just come and accept me. Have you heard about Jesus? He is no pantheon. He's the one true God. Have you heard about him? And that leads to the second thing. Uh, I believe this is an Old Testament form of people hearing the good news, the gospel of God. This is a gospel moment. This is an Old Testament Jesus moment. We cannot 
ever minimize the importance at Redemption Church of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus every single week, no matter what. And not just in the, in the sermons, but in the songs and in the prayers and in the community that we have. We cannot overestimate or minimize the importance of teaching God's word every single week. Of opening this book and examining it and studying it and being rebuked and corrected by it, but also giving thanks and praise to God for giving us this truth as well. We cannot minimize or underestimate the importance of sharing God's stories with each other, like we do through backstories and like we do through um, our all-of-life interviews and like we do when we have coffee with each other or we have a meal together. Those things are so important. They are at the absolute core of what it means to be a Christ follower and what it means to be a part of Redemption Church. You hear it all the time. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus and all five of our other uh, core values press right into those things as well. Well, the story of the exodus of God's people, the story of it, is having a profound effect on this religious professional. He's a religious professional. That's what he does for a living. And it's having a profound effect on him who otherwise never would have considered the reality of a one true God, Yahweh. Never would have. There's no reason for him to. He's not in a context where he would consider Yahweh as the one true God. In many ways, he's very similar to the person we're going to interview on November 7th. And this is why Redemption Church is gospel-centered and outward-focused and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And then number three, look at Moses. The focus has been on Jethro so far, but look at Moses. I've been talking about this throughout the series. Look at how Moses is growing and maturing. And we see it again today all through chapter 18, the way Moses is growing and maturing, not only as a person, not only as a believer in God, but also in his leadership. Clearly, if you think about Moses' early life, his first 40 years, he was living in, in Pharaoh's household, in Pharaoh's court. He had all of the accoutrement, the pleasure, the benefits All of that, of the king of Egypt, the the most powerful, the, the one superpower in the world at that time. He had all of that at his disposal for the first 40 years. He had the greatest leadership gurus pouring into his life, shaping him. He could read the most important leadership books. He'd just look on the New York Times bestseller list or maybe the Cairo Times bestseller list. I don't know. He had access to conferences and wise counsel, just like we do today. But I will tell you that it's clear from the book of Exodus that his greatest leadership development happens, first of all, here in chapter 18 through two conversations with his father-in-law. Some of the greatest leadership development he has is through his faith community, through his family community. And second of all, I would also argue that he had greater leadership development during the second 40 years of his life when he's out in the wilderness of Midian Shepherding sheep and goats. You can learn a lot about leadership when you shepherd these contentious little animals, I will tell you. And that's been a big part of his uh, development. And then we do have to deal with this. Why? Why? There is no detail in the Bible that, that is unimportant. 
How many times does the reader need to be reminded that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law? Is it clear to us that he's his father-in-law now? Okay. What, what's the reason for this? Maybe, maybe here's the reason. Uh, maybe the reason is to remind us even today that it's possible that our in-laws could have something good to contribute to our lives. Maybe. Some of you are like throwing up in your mouth right now. I know. I get that. But I think, I think more than this, more than that even, I think it's this. God is slowing down this narrative and he wants to show us a tender, respectful, honoring, glorifying relationship between these two men that otherwise don't have anything in common other than the fact that he married and saved, in a sense, his daughter, Jethro's daughter. And so there's this level of respect there. There's this level of honor. There's this tenderness. But there's also candor, as we're going to see. Jethro is able to speak significant truth and wisdom into Moses' life. And he has that platform because of this honoring and glorifying relationship, as we are going to see later. But first, let's look at the next three verses, this little paragraph that takes things up just a notch for Jethro. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of, of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Now I know. The whole point of Exodus is that God would be known. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they, the Egyptians, dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. The idea of eating bread in that context, um, bread is obviously a staple in in diets, but bread is also um, symbolic, significantly symbolic of the presence of God in that context as well. We're going to see that later when we start talking about the building of the tabernacle. The, pres- the bread of presence, and it, and it symbolizes the presence of God. But this paragraph is really significant. Jethro's awe of God is taken up a notch. He is not only offering sacrifices to Yahweh, but he's praising him as well. He's lifting him up. And it's interesting, we had a long conversation about this also at the Preaching Collective uh, 11 days ago. Some of the commentaries in reading about this believe that Jethro is simply saying that, that God is just the best of all the gods. He's like the CEO God, but he still has his pantheon that he's going to worship and he's going to serve and he's going to go to. But other commentators believe that Jethro is, is having a genuine Nebuchadnezzar moment here. That, that he's now purging the idea of the pantheon and he's looking only to Yahweh and he's saying, I am now all in on the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. And, and that's, that's the perspective that I hold here. But either way, no matter which one it is, here's what I want you to consider in terms of practical application. Jethro's response and dedication represent a far more faithful response than God's own people. And all Jethro did was hear about it. He didn't see it and experience it. Do you catch that? Do you see that? That's pretty amazing here. I think maybe part of it is just his life experience, his age and the wisdom that comes with that. And for Moses then, Moses gets to be a part of this. 
He's been fighting all these battles on behalf of God for so long, and then he gets to witness this, the, the, the experience of somebody changing their worldview from, from one of folly, falsehood, and fantasy to one that embraces the one true God. That's an amazing experience. Have you ever, you ever been there when somebody turns from their old life and they say, I want to know how to become a Christ follower. I want to embrace Jesus. I want to call him my Lord and Savior. I want Jesus now in my life. Have you ever been there when that happens? Do you understand what an unbelievable privilege that is? The beauty of that? You're witnessing a supernatural, Holy Spirit-manufactured change in somebody's heart, mind, worldview, perspective, life. And God allowed you to be there, and God probably even used you in the midst of that experience. What an incredible privilege that is to be a part of that. And, and God even tells us through Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, you now are ambassadors of this good news, this gospel, and you are now ministers of reconciliation. You are to go out and share this with other people. We've been given our marching orders, but, but God also knows that there's great joy when God moves in somebody's life as we act as ministers of reconciliation and somebody says, I'm undone, I need Jesus. That's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful moment. That too is a privilege. But on the other hand, verse 11 just struck a chord with me. Personally, the Egyptians dealt arrogantly with the people. Let me just give you a couple minutes on my own experience with arrogance. And if you'd like details, I can give you Jackie's phone number. She can give you some insight on that. Um, here you go. I have never, ever, 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 I want to make sure I memorize enough evers, ever, 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 never, ever, ever accomplished anything worthwhile through arrogance. Never. And nothing good has ever happened in the wake of my arrogance. It just doesn't happen. And, and here's the irony of it. Even if I am 100% correct in what I'm saying and what I'm doing, if it comes out as arrogance, it doesn't work. It doesn't help. It makes it impossible for people to hear and to receive. How many of you at work or in your neighborhood or even in your family you find it easy to listen to somebody who's, who's presenting contrary truth to what you believe, but they're doing it in a, in a humble and, and in a loving way. You're willing to listen and you're willing to have that conversation, but the minute somebody just comes in and starts beating you up verbally, even if they're right, why, why would you listen? It's very hard on us. Scripture all throughout consistently tells us of the dangers of arrogance, hubris, pride, and the destruction that it breeds. And believe me, I know from experience, I, I was never recognized by a research university, but I had a, I had a PhD in arrogance at one time. And, 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 and just like somebody who has an addiction, it's very easy for me to go back to it. And it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest warnings in the Bible is this idea of pride or arrogance or hubris. And I found out the hard way that if you are God's kid through Jesus Christ, if you're one of his kids, but you also have arrogance, pride, and hubris, you do need to kind of look over your shoulder and maybe duck occasionally because God will come and he'll figure out a way to humble you. 
And sometimes he'll humble you in a quiet, private way, but sometimes he'll do it very publicly. But he'll do it because he loves you. God is very good at humbling his arrogant children. Let's look at this last paragraph we're going to deal with today. And it's a long one, but it's significant. This is the second conversation that we have with Jethro and Moses. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. Now, remember, how many, of the, how many people were there? Two and a half million. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. This burden, what you're trying to do, is too much. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. It's significant that twice, this is the first time, uh, Jethro is acknowledging that this is going to be done by the power of God, not, but not the power of Jethro, not the power of Moses, but by the, even though Jethro is speaking words of rebuke to Moses, he's, he's saying, this is really about God, and you need to understand that. And God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cares, uh, cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. By the way, fast forward to the New Testament and the qualifications for elders and deacons and you can see how that's being developed, possibly out of a little seed that's being planted here as well. Men who fear God are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. In a sense, it's their court system. It kind of sounds like the way our court system is constructed. We don't just have a United States Supreme Court, but we have all these other intermediary courts as well. And let them judge the people at all times. Even uh, every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So in other words, if you do this, God is going to make this work out really well, and you're going to experience peace, you and all the people. And so we find that Moses listens to Jethro, the last verse or two. Moses listens to Jethro, and he follows his advice, and he appoints all of these men over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And there are some really good takeaways, at least three that I can see in this, in this paragraph. First of all, Moses is genuinely caring for the people. He was not just the guy that led them out under the heavy burden of leadership, but he genuinely loves and cares for these people. But here's the question, who's caring for Moses? Jethro. Jethro is. Jethro, his father-in-law, is the one who stepped up and said, you need care. Now, now he's rebuking him, but it's, that's care. He's correcting him, but that's care. That's love. It's amazing. We need to remember that caretakers also need care. Those who care for others also need care. 
We had Adam last week as a, uh, representing healthcare providers. And, and think what you might about healthcare providers, but understand they're trying very hard to care for other people all day long. The pressures must be magnificently large. How are they caring for themselves? Last week at lunch, Tyler James, our family pastor, looked at me and he said, I've watched you now for three years, Frank, and it seems to me that you are everyone's safe place to go to, so here's my question, where's your safe place? And that's a legitimate question. And I'm glad he asked the question. And, and I told him, I said, I think I, had that, I have that covered, and I told him um, where I go and what I do. But I will also tell you, it has taken literally years to cultivate my place where I can also get care. Years and years and years. And it's not just Jackie, in case you're wondering. She can't bear that burden all by herself. There's many others that are involved in that. So every week we stand up here and, and we infuse, we're very good at Redemption Church at infusing Protestant guilt. We tell you, you need to serve others, you need to serve others, you need to serve others. You're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. Here's that one Sunday where I'm going to look you right in the eye and I'm going to say, are you taking care of yourself? Are you caring for yourself? Are you finding ways to make sure that you are caring for yourself? Because you do need to do that. Parents, you need to care for yourself. Those of you who are not married, you need to make sure that you don't exhaust yourself serving others because you have so much time to serve others and you need to have a place to be able to care for yourself. And we'll let the students figure that out later on when they grow up, okay, for themselves. Here's the next thing. Moses has an ideal. All of us have ideals. Some, some psychologists would say that our ideals are, are more aptly named fantasies. Not real, they're not reality. But Moses has this ideal that he's going to be able to take care of everyone. Now, that's just not realistic, is it? And, and, and this makes it even tougher. Not only did he have this ideal, but he was sincere about it. He was fully bought into it. I sincerely believe that I can take care of all of these people. But we also need to understand that idealism and sincerity, as nice as those things are and as helpful and as good as those things can be to us, they can never overcome reality. Reality always wins. And we need to deal with that. We need to remember that wisdom, order, and contentment are from God and they are good things. Moses struggled with contentment as well. What Jethro is doing here is he is imparting the wisdom of God that gives order to a situation that is clearly disordered and out of control and that desperately needs Moses to feel contentment in because I know what it would be like for Moses to have an ideal and have somebody say, you're never going to be able to live up and match, meet that ideal. Now you have to take a step back and allow something else to happen that can be a very discontenting thing. And so Moses also had to find contentment in letting go of control, letting go of the reins, of, of becoming more of an administrator than just the man, the one person there. And we need to understand that this, this message is not anti-ambition, it's not anti-passion, it is not anti-sincerity, but it is reality. And some of us need a good dose of reality, myself included. 
Our, one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, he had a uh, sort of a, it, it was one of his what you might call canned talks. It was a talk that he had developed. And, and as he started to give it, other places would say, we need you to come and give that talk here. And here's the name of the talk. I've mentioned it before. Some of you know it. The name of the talk, it, talk is, put a lid on your dreams. That is really countercultural, isn't it? Because everywhere else you're going, what you're hearing in, the, in our culture and in our world is, you're not dreaming big enough. Your ideals aren't pure enough and large enough. You, you, you need to name it and claim it. You, you need to uh, uh, believe it, conceive it, and achieve it. You need to do all this. It's not big enough. You can do all of this. And he's, he's that one voice in the wilderness of truth and reality who's coming and saying, a lot of us would be a lot better off if we just put a lid on our dreams. He's not telling people not to have ambition. He's not telling people that, that they shouldn't be passionate about stuff. He's just saying, you got to season your idealism with reality. you got to be able to do that. And remember that God may only have this for you at this particular season in your life. And if you're not faithful in this, he's never going to give you this. I mean, Jesus taught that, and we need to understand that. And I know we hear all the time about the importance of sincerity. Yes, that person believes that, but they're really sincere about believing that. Okay, it's possible that they are sincerely wrong. You, you understand that, right? Okay. And third, here's another thing. We need to see that there is strength in the breadth and the depth of the body. And now I'm fast forwarding to New Testament. I'm talking about the body of Christ. I'm talking about this room right here. I'm talking about how we live and operate together, that each of us is just a piece of the body and we have a purpose and we have a gift uh, and we contribute and we encourage, but none of us can do it all. None of us is the body alone. We are a part of a, a body. We function as a body. Think about your own body, body and how it functions. Think about it. And think about how devastating it would be to lose even one of those functions of your body. And certainly there are big functions that would be devastating like sight or hearing or taste or, or if your arm, your hand is cut off and, and, and you can't use your hand. Certainly those are big, but you understand that even the smaller, the things that we don't think that much about, imagine if something happened to your elbow. It'd be devastating. But we don't ever think about our elbow, except maybe to moisturize it occasionally. Here you go. How about your little, your, your little pinky toe? That last little toe that everybody's annoyed with. You can't, clip the, you can't clip the nail. It's really hard. It's ugly, you know. I mean, all the toes are ugly, but this is the ugliest of the toes, I'm telling you. You understand that if you lost one of your pinky toes, you would have trouble with balance the rest of your life? The breadth and the depth of the body, we need to understand how important it is for us. We need to rely on each other. We need to humbly submit ourselves to each other. We need to bear each other's burdens. We need to embrace the one and others of scriptures. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need to always, 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 always remember that we're part of a body. When was the last time you just sat down and contemplatively and prayerfully and joyfully read 1 Corinthians 12, one of the most magnificent chapters in Scripture. Paul tells us about the body, how important it is. 
So one question is, well, what exactly were the people disputing about that they all had to come to Moses? Uh, We don't know, but when you get 2.4 million people together, there are bound to be disputes. There's bound to be animus going on. There are bound to be things that they're going to argue about. Even without social media, they found a way to be able to argue with each other. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. Oh, if we could just go back to Egypt. Oh, if we just get more and better food. Moses, you need to get my neighbor's kids off my lawn. Moses, you need to get my neighbor to mow his lawn. Moses, is there a way we could... I, I just want to get away from these, these, these people. Hey, you took my parking space. Could you turn off Fox News and put on CNN? Or even better, could you put on the hockey game? See, that would be my complaint right there. Where's the hockey game? Okay. And it's not that Moses was a bad judge. It's simply that it was just too big of a job for him or any person at all. And this is, this is by the way, this is not a common occurrence. This happens everywhere. It even happened in the New Testament church, and, and we have it recorded for us in Acts chapter 6. This is the early church now in Acts. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not, in other words, they gathered everybody together and they had, a, they had a church meeting. And they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. It's not that serving tables wasn't important, but what they were called to do was to proclaim the gospel and teach the word of God. Therefore, brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. There's that elder stuff starting to be developed again whom we will appoint for this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and what they said pleased the whole gathering. So you see, this goes on all the time. God is a God of, of order, of purpose, of design, of plan. And he's not a God of, of disorder, and we need to understand that. And, and also, it's understandable that the people would want to speak only to Moses, though. I mean, think about who Moses has been in their lives so far. He's been out in front of everything. He's walking around with the staff of God. He's the one that ostensibly parted the Red Sea. He's the one that got them the water, told them about the manna, told them about the quail, that that was coming. He's been their intermediary to to God. He's the only one of the 2.4 million people. He had high visibility. Everybody knew who Moses was. Does anybody know what a parasocial relationship is? We all have them. You are not exempt from having a parasocial relationship, neither am I. We all have them. A parasocial relationship is a relationship, that, and we have many of them, but it's a relationship that you and I will develop with a public figure, that we know them because they're public figures. So athletes, entertainers, politicians. Here, here's what's really kind of creepy about parasocial relationships. Here you go. We even develop parasocial relationships with characters on a sitcom. Not even real people, but characters. So if you saw Jenna Fisher out in the public, you'd walk up to her and go, Pam! Pam, Pam! Pam! You'd be Michael Scott, you know? We develop these relationships with people who are highly public. Here's the problem with parasocial relationships. You know them, they don't necessarily know you. And most certainly, in most cases, they have no idea who you are. 
And, and, and we need to be aware of this because it, it messes with our expectations. I will tell you, the, the power of parasocial relationships is amazing, but they can also, it, it can be so embarrassing as well. Do you know how many entertainers and athletes have sworn off going out in public at all? Because of the number of people who walk up to them. And they're like, <laughs> it's me. And they're like, who are you? And they're calling for their security, you know. And it's embarrassing to see how people are genuinely offended. It's like, it would be like me running up to LeBron. LeBron, hey, it's me, Frank, as I'm being dragged away by his bodyguards, you know. It's amazing how we do this. They're doing this to Moses. I want to talk to Moses. He's the guy with the staff. He's the guy I know. Well, he doesn't know you. Well, he should. I've been here the whole time. <laughs> I've been watching him on the tube. He should know who I am. Because he was so visible, they wanted to come to him. And, and, and he wasn't thinking clearly enough to say, this is unsustainable. And Jethro steps in and helps him. The importance of listening to our community and listening to wise counsel. Read the Proverbs. All throughout the Proverbs, it says you need wise counsel. Okay? But probably more than this is the fact that Moses was obviously teachable in the midst of a mess. That is such a rare quality today. Moses was teachable. He was humble enough to listen to his father-in-law and say, yeah, that's a good idea, rather than arrogantly saying, no, I can do it. I'm just going to be strong and do it. Mark Manson, in his most recent book, he writes, those who think they know everything can never learn anything. There's that arrogance again. Pride always goes before the fall, but Moses was humble. Moses fell when he was arrogant. Notice that 40 years earlier. Now he's humble and he's learning and he's leading. And Moses saw both the wisdom and the care in what Jethro was saying. I was going to save this for the end, but it's just too ripe for now. And I'll just keep talking about it. I found that in most churches with most Christians, we shun the power of the community of faith. We just do. We shun it. And that's a mistake. We don't listen. Cognitively, we all agree. Rationally, we all agree. Oh yes, the community, it's a wonderful thing. Get in those groups. Develop those relationships. Iron sharpens iron. There is wisdom in many counselors. We can all spout all of that. But then when things get hard for us personally, when disappointment or frustration begins to waft over us, when things aren't going our way and we think they should, when our skin becomes too thin, or when we're in a season of sin, even, what do we do? You know what we do? We withdraw, we isolate, and we go to our favorite and yet most foolish counselor for advice and help, and that's ourself. We become this incredible echo chamber of one. How often do you actually disagree with yourself? You are an affirmation machine when it comes to your own opinion. I hope you understand that. And then we enter what David Augsburger, the psychologist, calls the negative downward spiral of reactivity that we can never seem to pull out of because the momentum of self-counsel is nearly impossible to reverse. And if we do go and talk to somebody else, we're very careful to, to select somebody that we know will merely affirm what we're already thinking. Remember when Tyler talked about this during the Philippians series? He talked about this from the perspective of the church. He talked about how sad it is for us as church leaders and for our Redemption community leaders, and even for simply friends in general, 
to find out that somebody near and dear to us has made a very poor decision within a foolish vacuum of one. No discussion, no reaching out for help, no desire for wise counsel, as Proverbs says. Just this insatiable yearning to give in to your feelings. Daniel Gilbert, who's a professor of psychology, PhD in psychology, and has written many books, he writes this in his book, Stumbling on Happiness. Given a lack of information, people will always connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. That's just the way we are. And when you dive into yourself, when we're only listening to ourselves, we have a monumental lack of information, and so the pathology explodes. It's what prompted Ricardo Stewart, the pastor of our Tempe uh, congregation, to say this at the Preaching Collective a couple weeks ago. Be careful that feeling better does not become more important than finding God, submitting to His will, and engaging in your community of faith in doing so. And then there's verse 20. You shall warn them about the statutes and God's law. You shall warn them about the statutes and God's law. I, I tell you, that's an interesting model of evangelism if you think about it. Think about it. You see, here's the challenge. It's not just that God loves us in this nebulous, feel-good, Jesus loves you sort of way. This flowery, cupcakes and muffins way. But God also loves us by having statutes and laws. God also loves us by having order in the way that we're designed, created, and purposed to live and interact with Him, to live and interact with others, and to live and interact with His creation. There is an order, there's a design, there's a plan, there's a purpose for all of that. And when we disorder that order in any way, which is what sin is, there will be unpleasantness. Maybe not immediately, but it's coming. One of the ways to describe sin is very simply that it's a rebellious disorder of God's order, purpose, plan, and design. And that's Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve disordered everything when they disobeyed God and ate the fruit. Here you go. Let me ask you, how many of you have a relative who smokes and you have no problem warning them of the dangers of smoking? You have no problem doing that. Smoking disorders the respiratory system. God creates this respiratory system. He did not create it to, 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 to inhale smoke. You know, when there's a house fire, the first thing that people are worried about is not how, who got burned, but who's got smoke inhalation because it's bad for you. It disorders your entire system, okay? All right? And we know the statutes of smoking uh, are very clear. Stop it. It's not good for you. It will kill you. We know the statutes. How many of you have ever uh, had somebody quit smoking because you told them that the Surgeon General loves them? You see the point there. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't tell people that God loves them because He does, but His love is comprehensive and challenging and deep and wise. And we need to understand the full weight of that. God loves us, and because He loves us, He gives us His statutes, He gives us Jesus. He gives us Jesus' teaching and He gives us His Word. And that Word, the Bible, is true. And we need to know it and we need to pursue it and we need to read it and we need to discuss it and we need to study it and we need to find joy in it. And we can find joy in it. Uh, one of the, here you go. I'll end with this. One of the most troubling things that we deal with today in the church 
And again, this is, this is coming from discussions I'm having now, month after month after month, at the lead team level at Redemption Church. So all the other lead pastors together, Tyler's with us, Neil's with us. Uh, this is one of the things that we've been talking about a lot at the lead team level. One of the most troubling things we deal with today in the church is how many people in the church who call themselves Christians... The only thing they know about the Bible is what other people, mostly people outside of the church, is to, are telling them. They, they have staked their ground on biblical wisdom and truth based on what they're hearing, not what they're reading and studying for themselves. And by the way, this is only going to get worse as we continue to move from a text-driven culture to an image-driven culture. I hope you understand that. It's amazing how many conversations we have with Christians Christians that go something like this. So, you know, I don't think the Bible really does say this or that or thus or so. I don't think it really says that. I'm not sure where you get that because I, 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 I don't think that's what it says. And, and here's what we answer with. Here's how we answer. We say, okay, well, have you, have you read this passage here? Let me read it to you. And, and how about this passage over here? Let me read that to you. And how about, there's this entire chapter right here that deals with that. Here, let's read Read that. And, and, and the answer is almost always, oh, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't, no, I didn't know. I, this is just what I'm hearing. They will admit this is just what I'm hearing from others. And here you go. They're not talking about their friends at church. They're talking about people like at work that they don't even, they're not even in a faith community with. People in their neighborhood. See, this is just what I've heard. This is what I saw on the internet. This is what Bill Maher said. Oh, okay. That's helpful. Let me put this in a little different context for you. You're thinking about going to see a movie. And one of the things you do before you go see a movie is you pull up on the internet your favorite movie reviewer, your favorite movie critic to see what that critic, that reviewer has said about that movie. And then you find out, major scandal, this reviewer that you've spent years following and trusting in you find out that that reviewer has never actually seen any movie that he has critiqued or reviewed. Never seen one. And that all of his reviews and his critiques are written based on just what he hears from other people who may have seen the movie. Wouldn't you feel betrayed? And does that make any sense at all? Is there any place in the world of wisdom for something like that? And yet you and I do that without even thinking about it with the most important thing in our lives. Read it yourself. Study it yourself. Ask somebody about it and read with them who actually knows something about it. I will tell you, today's message does not have a Hollywood ending, and it has no resolution, and I've done that on purpose because I want us to be thinking about this as we leave today. I want you to think deep and hard about the truth of Jesus in the Bible. In Joshua 24, God asks his people, choose this day who you will serve. And God asks that question both implicitly and explicitly throughout the entirety of the Bible, and God asks you that same question today. So here's the question, are you playing or are you serious? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that you, you slow down for us when we need something to be slowed so that we can see the provision, the joy, the wisdom, the contentment, the order, 
the design and the plan in who you are and how you do things, just as we've seen in this, in this chapter today. God, thank you for Jethro. Thank you for using him, this pagan priest from Midian, to speak truth into Moses' life. And thank you that Moses was humble enough to hear and to obey. God, what a great paradigm of how we can live in the body here, in our faith community, in our church as well. God, give us the courage to be able to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.